Good morning, Mill Creek. How are y'all today? So um, our verses are going to be Genesis 22, uh, verse 20 through 23, verse 20. Uh, this is a kind of a longer passage with some names that are maybe a little bit weirder. Um, luckily, uh, Jonathan's going to come up and probably pronounce them better than I will. But uh, let's just bear together and read this uh, because it's the word of the Lord. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also, also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Amram, Kesed, Hazu, Pildes, Jedlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tebah, Geam, Tahash and Maaka. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirabath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, before his dead, and said to the Hittites, "I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place." that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites and the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat entreat from me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Melika, oh my goodness, wow, um, Machpelah, that's how you pronounce it, Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field, for the full price let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went to the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over. To Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, the field in the cave that is in that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for burying the place by the Hittites. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you right now, Lord, I ask for all of us to have humble hearts before your glory, before your presence, and before your word. I pray that uh, your presence is here and that we are just hearing your words. And I pray over Jonathan as he comes up that he will just be able to preach your name and your name and your name and that the gospel is ever present. In your name I pray. Amen. The year was 1785, and a group of pastors were gathered together in a small town in England, getting ready to hear the word preached, and their minds were about to be blown by a powerful sermon that, that morning by a young preacher who went by the name William Carey. Now, Carey wasn't known of, for being an elegant speaker, or even really that great of a preacher. But what he would become known for that morning was his crazy beliefs on the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission, right? It's that passage in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I have commanded you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Now, Carey believed that that great commission wasn't just meant for the original disciples, but it was meant for all generations of the church, and we actually needed to send disciples out to convert the nations. I know, crazy, right? Okay, maybe not for us, but back in 1785, that was a big deal. I mean, they simply weren't sending missionaries out on the mission field. In fact, he got done preaching a sermon, an older pastor stood up and said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God wants to convert the heathen, he will do so without concerning you or I. Now, despite these harsh reactions, Kerry was adamant that he needed to go out in the mission field. He was adamant that we needed to be preaching the gospel to the nations. So year after year, he pushed and he prodded, and finally, in 1792, he was able to muster enough support to make his dream become a reality. That summer, Carey sent sail for India. With him, he brought his family and a few pastors who were crazy enough to buy into his dream. And he set sail, leaving everything behind, believing that that promise at the end of the Great Commission, that Jesus would be with his disciples at the end of the ages, was for him. He believed that God was with him. Now, the problem was when he got to India, the Indians didn't quite buy into that message. In fact, year after year, Kerry went out pounding the streets, calling people to repentance, preaching the gospel, and year after year, not a single soul responded to the gospel. During that time, he lost funding. His friends left the mission field, and his family started growing. He had less money to feed more mouths. From an outside perspective, it would seem that maybe God's promises weren't for Carrie. I'm sure back home, many were thinking, Carrie, what are you thinking? Just come home. 
Seven years on the mission field, not a single person came to know Jesus. But during that time, Carey was adamant. Despite his circumstances, he believed that God's promises were sure. Have you ever been in a place in your life when it felt like God's promises just weren't valid in your life? You know, all over Scripture, we have these crazy promises. God promises to bless us. We see at one point that Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And I remember as a young Christian thinking, well, this ain't easy. And this certainly doesn't feel light. Have you ever felt a time in your life when you just felt like, man, I'm living in these difficult circumstances and I'm just having a hard time seeing God's promises? Well, the hope of this sermon and our sermon in a sentence this morning is that our current circumstances do not negate the promises of God. We have hope this morning from our text that those things may seem bleak and there, though there may be problems associated in our current situation, we can be guaranteed that God's promises are true. We're tracking through the story of Abraham and if you remember all the way back to chapter 12, we saw that Abraham was a man who was called by God. God called him to leave his, his family, his homeland, everything he had ever known, to go to a land that God was showing him. And along the way, God gave him these promises, these two promises. On one hand, God promised to make him a great nation. And by extent, all nations would be blessed through him. And on the other hand, the second aspect of that promise God promised to give him the land of the Canaanites through his descendants. But as we'll see in our text this morning, there's a couple problems in his current situation associated with those promises. Abraham doesn't have control of the things that God has said he would hand to him. And so we examine this text this morning, we will see that God's promises are definitely sure, even though Abraham's current circumstances suggest otherwise. We have two big ideas of our text this morning. The first big idea, the, sec the success of others does not negate the promises of God. Now, if you have your Bible here this morning, please open up with me to Genesis chapter 2, 22, verses 20 through 23, 20. As we look at that first big idea, the success of others does not negate the promises of God. Follow along with me in 20 to 24. It says, now after these things it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemul, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Mekah. Now, as we hop into the first section of our text, you'll notice we're entering into a genealogy, and I get what you're thinking. Okay, Nahor had some sons. Check. Moving on. But there's actually something really cool going on here in this text. I want you to notice what's going on here in verse 1. Now, we've seen a lot of genealogies in, in Genesis so far, but none of them have a preface like this. It says, now, after these things, it was told to Abraham. 
And what our author is trying to do here is, is signaling to us that we need to read this text through Abraham's eyes. It's Abraham who's finding out about his brother. So step with me for a second into Abraham's shoes. You're a man or woman who's been called by God. You've left everything you have ever known. Your, your family, your inheritance, all the wealth that your father passed down, uh, the country uh, that you've, you've grown up in, you've left it all behind, believing that God was going to bless you. Now you're in the land of the Canaanites, and you hear about your brother, who has, at this point, 12 sons, eight through Milcah and four more through a concubine. Now it would seem on the surface that Nahor is being blessed. I mean, this man is blowing up. You know, in an ancient world, to have 12 sons, that's the jackpot. That's like locking in the six-figure job with a nice, fancy company car. That's a big deal. That is 12 sons to carry on your family name. 12 sons to carry on your inheritance. 12 sons to make your name sound great. That's huge. But you remember back to that promise for Abraham. You remember God promised to Abraham that God would make him a great nation. But the problem we see here is that Nahor is actually the great nation, and Abraham is not. At this point in our text, Abraham has had two sons. And one of those, Ishmael, has been cut off from the family line. He is not a son of the inheritance. So essentially at this point, Abraham has one son to carry on his name. Nahor has 12. I mean, from an onlooker, it's not hard to do the math. Clearly, Nahor is the one who's being blessed by God. And on top of that, as we, uh, we examine through the book of Genesis, what this means for Nahor is that he has grown beyond just a, a simple tribal family. He's actually become a nation. You remember that there's somebody else who's already been guaranteed 12 sons, Ishmael. And later on, we'll see another figure in the book of Genesis, Jacob, who will also have 12 sons. Now, if we're looking at these things in a vacuum, if we're comparing these things in our text, people might be thinking Abraham made some sort of mistake. Well, you claim to be a man who's called by God, but your brother's the one blowing up. Maybe you should have just stayed in the land of your father. Maybe you should have just stayed in your homeland. Maybe God would have blessed you too. And church, what we need to understand here is things aren't always as they seem. Though it seems that Nahor is becoming a great nation, behind the scenes, God is working in the life of Abraham. God is doing something in the life of Abraham. But if we zero in on his current circumstances, it seems like God's promises just aren't coming true. So for us, as we look at this text, we need to learn from this example and realize what the text is showing us in our application this morning. Stop comparing your life to others. See, church, I think we need to admit we do this all the time. We see our neighbors and those around us getting new cars and new phones and new careers and new jobs. We see these benchmarks in life, and we think we got to measure up to what everybody else is doing. But God is doing something in your life right now with your current circumstances. 
when we zero in and we look at uh, all that God has done and where he has brought us, we begin to realize that we can't measure up to the life around us. But when we focus outwards and we view others, it becomes impossible to see what God is doing in our own life. You see, well, it would seem that Nahor is blowing up and becoming a great nation. As we zoom out and we look at the broader history, we realize that Nahor actually goes on to become relatively nothing, an insignificant figure in history. Yeah, he has a bunch of kids, but they become seemingly meaningless. But when you look at their t- this text, there actually is a child here who is utterly, crucially vital to history. And it's not one of Nahor's sons. It's his granddaughter, uh, Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel. You see, like Abraham was called out of the land of his father, Rebekah is also being called. God is calling this woman to leave her homeland and go on to marry Isaac and become a co-recipient of the promises of God. And God would use this family line to blow up the world and change the face of humanity. But if we zero in on the small-scale perspective, we miss what God is doing in their life. And you have to realize, no matter what situation you're in right now, God is doing something. If you are a God's sovereignty is working in your life. He is correcting your future. He is changing your heart. He is conforming you to his image. God is doing something right now in your life, and he can be trusted. So stop zooming out, comparing your life to others, and realize that right now you are blessed because you have the promises of God. We've seen that the success of others cannot negate the promises of God. We move on to our second big idea of our text this morning. Big idea number two, death does not negate God's promises. Continue with me in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kariath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now as we read forward, we move out of genealogy back into narrative only to find a very sad truth. Sarah has died. And we have here a death record. And I want to point out to you how important that is. You see, we've, we've seen tons of death records in the book of Genesis so far. They're everywhere. But what I want you to note this morning is that of all those death records, this is the only one that mentions a woman. Sarah's will be the only death, not only in Genesis, but all of the Bible that's recorded. And what our author is doing here is highlighting just how important Sarah is to the biblical narrative. You see, Sarah isn't just the wife of Abraham. Sarah isn't just the woman who married the man of promise. Sarah has been elevated to the same status of Abraham. She is a recipient of the promise. She is utterly important. God has elevated her. 
And we see here upon her death, Abraham finally is living up to his role as the father of nations and the husband he should have earlier on in mourning and weeping for his wife. Here in the midst of his brokenness, he goes in uh, to do the thing he should as as a husband and mourns with her. And we come to another difficult truth. You see, you remember that second aspect of the promise. God promised that Abraham would possess the land of the Canaanites through his descendants. And we notice here where Sarah died. Here in verse 2, it says that she died in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. But here we're going to see Abraham, a man of promise, a man blessed by God, with nowhere to bury his wife. You see, at this time, Abraham has no possession of the land. In fact, the land is owned by a group of people called the Hittites. And that's the problem we see in our text. The Hittites own the land, and Abraham doesn't. And while he should be mourning and weeping for his wife, and bringing some closure to this hard truth in his life, Abraham is going to have to enter into some difficult negotiations with the people of the land. As we read forward in this text, we're going to see this negotiation play through three different stages as Abraham haggles and barters for a tomb to bury his spouse. Read on with me in verses 3 to 6 as we see the first stage of negotiation. It says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burial place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, as we read on, it would seem that Abraham's been given a pretty sweet deal. I mean, he's come here looking to to buy land, and now they are offering to give him land for free. Now, I want to notice something subtle that's going on here. Number one, in an ancient negotiation, they're not actually offering to give him the land for free. It's a means of hospitality to, to put forward this nice offer and then expect a counteroffer in return. But even more than that, they're not actually even offering to allow Abraham to buy the land. Notice what it says here in verse 4. Abraham says, give me property among you for a burial place. But the Hittites respond in verse 6, bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. Did you catch that? You see, Abraham's looking to buy property. He wants ownership of a tomb. And the Hittites are saying, well, you can use one of our tombs. You don't get to have it. You can just use it. So what they're doing here is holding back the property from Abraham. They're keeping him from purchasing it because this land is so valuable. Rather than giving Abraham what they want, they're uh, offering him uh, uh, something, uh, uh, offering him a rental property. It'd be like if you went to buy a car and they said, well, you can use my car all you want, but make sure you pay for the gas. 
You see, this isn't actually as good as a deal as we may realize. So Abraham comes back with a counteroffer here in verses 7 to 11 in the second phase of negotiation. It says, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat from me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for the burial place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron, the Hittite, answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all, all who went into the city gate. No, Lord, I give you the field, I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give you, bury your dead. Now, once again, this seems like a pretty sweet deal. Abraham just wanted a tomb, and now he's being offered a tomb and some land to boot. But once again, the language here is very subtle. Once again, Abraham affirms in verse 9, he says, Give it to me in your presence as property. And Ephraim, who is sitting amongst them, responds back in verse uh, verse. Uh, 11 saying, no, no, I'll, I'll give it to you. you. You take it for now, and we'll have it back later. Now, at this point, it kind of feels like two people arguing over a check. Oh, no, I've got it this time. No, no, you got it last time. But the language here is extremely important. You see, notice where they are in verse 10. They're at the city gate. Now, in the ancient world, the city gate was a place of importance. That's where all the legal business happened. If you wanted something to be official, you took care of that business at the city gate. So Abraham here wants to make certain that everybody understands, no, I'm not renting this property. I'm not just using this property. I want to own this property. I need to purchase this. Because if Abraham doesn't make this sure, a generation down the line, his, his descendants come back and they say, give us our tomb. They say, whoa, hold on. You would never actually purchase this ground. You see, Abraham is looking forward. He's realizing that this is a crucial negotiation. And that's why he comes back in verses 12 to 16 with a final offer in the last phase of our no negotiation. It says, then Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the, the weights current among the merchants. Now we see here that finally we've come to a deal. Abraham asks for a price, and Ephraim mentions a price. And you notice how he just slides that in there. He says, oh, what's, what's a piece of, of land worth, oh, I don't know, 400 shekels between you and me? Now, we need to note here that this is actually an exorbitant amount for this piece of property. Now, when we compare this to other places in the Bible, he is asking a lot for Abraham to buy this land. 
He is not just men- mentioning a, a good deal for both of them. He is kind of taking Abraham for a run for his money. He's throwing out this huge cost, hopefully with the expectation that either Abraham will pay it or we'll just move on and he can continue to own his own land. And we kind of get a, a sense here of how valuable this is. These Hittites are not willing to give up their land easily. They're not going to give it up without a fight. And it goes back to that problem. This land is owned by another people. Though Abraham is the one who rightfully uh, has the claim to the land of the Canaanites, though God has promised it to him, here he is bartering and being taken advantage of as he lives in the land that God has promised him. But as a man of faith, he steps up and he purchased the land. And we see a monumental moment. All the way since we've been examining Abraham, all the way back to Genesis 12, this is the first time that Abraham will own a piece of land in the land of the Canaanites. For the first time, the land that God has promised to him, finally, finally a piece of it belongs to him. We see that Abraham can finally do what he set out to do. He can bury the wife that he's mourning for and finally can have closure for. So we see here in 17 to 20. It says, So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole region, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites. Before all who went into the, the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is, uh, were made over to Abraham as a property for a burial place by the Hittites. Now, as we round out our text, Sarah is finally put to rest. Now, as monumental as this moment is, I want to point out that this doesn't actually solve the problem that we've seen as we've walked through this text. Well, Abraham finally owns property. He can't actually live on this property. You remember that the whole point of buying this plot of ground is so that he could bury his dead out of his sight. You see, he's not going to live in this land. This land isn't for living on, it's for dying on. And from an outside perspective, that sounds kind of strange. I mean, in the ancient world, there was tons of of unowned ground that you could have buried your dead on. Abraham could have gone back home and buried his dead there. Abraham could have gone outside of the land of the, the, the Canaanites and buried his dead there. But here he is purchasing a piece of ground that he will never live on in his lifetime. It seems foolish. It seems strange. But we're seeing here that Abraham is making a step of faith. You see, well, he knows that he will never have the right to live on this land. He realizes that in generations down the line, his descendants are coming back. And they're not just coming back, but someday they won't be sojourners in this land. They will be the rightful owners, God-given owners of the promised land. 
In fact, as we look down the line, several generations later, we see a similar figure take a step of faith. A man named Joseph. You see, at at the time when Israel was living in Egypt, Joseph was on his deathbed, and he made his ancestors give him this promise. He said, when you leave here four generations later, you need to take my bones with you. Don't leave me here in Egypt. Take me with you. And his ancestors stepped out in faith. They brought his bones, carried them 40 years through the wilderness, and they came and they buried him here in the promised land, right here in this tomb. You see, as the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness and finally coming to this land and seeing this tomb, they were remembering the promises of God and realizing that even though Abraham died, even though Abraham passed away several generations earlier, God's promises are not negated by death. See, Abraham committed to living his whole life as a sojourner. A man wandering around in a land he never owned, believing the promises of God. And for us, just like Abraham, those of us who have believed in the promises of Christ, we have to realize that we too are sojourners. This world is not our home. Here on this earth, we will never have a place of comfort. Like Jesus, we will never have a place to lay our head if we lean into the promises of God and we realize that this is not our homeland. So for us this morning, our application is to accept being a sojourner in this world. And at times it can be so frustrating when we're stuck bartering for things in this broken world, when we see our our schools and our government putting forward doctrine and beliefs that are so contrary to the biblical message, when we see people disowning uh, biblical truth and giving in to sin, it can be so frustrating to stand back and realize that this world is dying. We have to realize that this world is not our home. For us, we are seeking a different homeland. And like Abraham and Joseph, we have to lean into the promises of God and not look back. Of them, the writers of Hebrews said this in chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Church, we have that as a promise. That this world will never be our home. And though it may feel in these current circumstances like everything is bearing down on us, it may seem at times that God's promises aren't true, we have to lean into God's word and believe that though our current circumstances are bearing down on us, God's promises are certain. You see, that was the belief of William Carey. You see, in the darkest of his days, when he was broke and lonely, when people were leaving the mission field and his funding was pouring out, Carrie penned these words. 
He said, I'm a stranger in this land. No Christian friends, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. But I have God, and His words are sure. You see, it seemed for many years that God was not with William Carey. But when we step back from his circumstances and we zoom out from his 41 years on the mission fields, we realize that thousands would come to know the name of Jesus. Through his influence and through his push to send people out on the mission field, others would be stirred up to believe the message of the Great Commission and would go out to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel, all because he believed in God's promises. Because of the belief of William Carey, many millions have come to hear the name of Jesus because he believed that God's promises were sure. In church, we have to realize this morning that God's promises are not just for Abraham. God's promises are not just for William Carey. God's promises are for you. No, it seems at times that this world is breaking and crushing down on us. We have to realize as we look back on Easter Sunday that because of Jesus, we have the guarantee of those promises. And in the lifetime of Jesus, many looked at his current circumstances and thought, certainly this isn't the guy he says he is. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he claimed to be the Son of God, the one who could take away the sins of the world. He claimed, he promised that if anyone believed in him, they would receive eternal life. And many looked at the fact that he came from a poor household. Many looked at the fact that he said these things that drove his disciples away and windled down the crowds. Many looked at the fact that on a Friday 2,000 years ago, he was crucified and buried in a tomb. Many took that as fact that his current circumstances proved that his promises couldn't be true. Oh, but church, we know what happened on Easter Sunday when that tomb was empty and Jesus proved that not even death, not even death could negate the promises of God. We have this firm assurance that if you believe in Christ Jesus, you will have eternal life. For us this morning, Christians, don't be scared off by your current circumstances. Don't let this world beat you down and convince you that what Christ did is somehow negated by what's happening in our world. Because Christ conquered death. For you this morning who have not accepted Jesus, don't fall into the trap of the circumstances of this world. You see, our world is always going to push you down to another horizon, tell you to seek another path to riches, to fame, to self-fulfillment. But every one of these paths only leads to death. 
But the good news for you this morning is despite what circumstances are going on in your life, despite what evil is happening to you right now, despite what evil you have committed, Jesus has promised and he is guaranteed that if you turn from this world and follow Christ, you too will have eternal salvation. I urge you this morning, to accept the promises of Christ, turn from this world and follow Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who can conquer death and his promises are sure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. Lord, we thank you that we can look back 2,000 years ago and know that that tomb is still empty. Because Christ is risen, because he conquered the grave, we can be confident in this world, no matter our situations, no matter how hopeless it feels, that God indeed is with us. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his holy name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.